Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Mark Leverage Magic podcast, this one being for September 2019. And although I'm recording this midway through August, hopefully by the time this is released and you're listening to it, my new website will have been launched. It's due to be launched right at the end of August, so that by the 1st of September, it hopefully will be settled down. I do hope you'll go and take a look at it. It's For me, it's quite a departure from the style of website that I had previously for the last few years and I hope that you find it simple to find your way around it you'll find it interesting and that uh, you'll take a good look at it if you spot any broken links or any other sort of things that don't quite work please do let me know obviously it's quite a large site with uh, hundreds and hundreds of pages and I'm sure there must be lots of errors in there. So if you do happen to spot anything, don't be afraid to let me know. I'd rather know and try and put it right than have lots of people irritated by the thing that doesn't work. So anyway, so um, as I say, take a look and let me know what you think. Now, I was uh, walking through town the other day and I popped into um, a second-hand bookshop. And I was just looking along... Uh, the shelves, and I came across um, a large hardback book called Always Leave Them Laughing, which is John Fisher's um, biography of Tommy Cooper, which he published in 2006. And I hadn't actually ever seen it before, and I sort of picked it up and I started leafing through it. I thought, oh, this this is quite interesting. So I bought the book and I've been reading it. Uh, and it is fascinating. I mean, Tommy Cooper was is such an icon of British comedy and of course, for us magicians, he is still, I am sure, one of the people that lay people still ask us about, even though he's been gone. He died in 1984 or whatever it was. Um, he still has left an imprint on people's minds who experienced him or who have seen the reruns of his material on television since. And uh, so I'm really enjoying finding out the background. He was a complicated character and um, and clearly John Fisher did know him well and has done also extra research and had access to information that others have not been privy to in the past. So it makes for a really interesting read. But there was one quote attributed to Tommy, which um, which I thought was quite interesting. And it was this. He said, I often wonder what separates the amateurs from the pros. Being persistent, I suppose. And I thought, that not that an interesting way of looking at the difference between those who earn their, their money from magic and those who just do it as a hobby? Being persistent. See, what this means to me, and, and I'm sure he's right about this, is that when doing magic is your job, as opposed to earning money that's basically to put back into magic or is just to subsidise the hobby generally, take you to conventions and so on and so forth. For people who have to earn their living, there are ups and downs. You very rarely go through a period where literally everything for a long period is going incredibly well. For most of us, you go through a period where things are going well, and then suddenly there's a dip and sometimes quite a dramatic fall on occasions. And you suddenly wonder, what am I doing wrong? Why has the why have the goalposts been moved? What's going on here? And success does not come necessarily quickly. Some of the most famous people, magicians in the world, have not been people who had instant success. It's taken them, as the old phrase goes, taken them years to become an overnight success. 
and persistence is definitely the key. You need to be persistent in your self-belief, your belief that you can make it as a professional magician, that you're good enough to, to do that, that you will get the breaks to get enough shows to make the whole thing thing work, that you will be capable of running your own business because show business we're in show business the show and you need the business behind it and a lot of people forget this i think when they're thinking of turning pro they forget that they're going to have to run a business can you do that do you know how to do accounting do you know how to to organize publicity and marketing and all the many other aspects of running a business and you have to be persistent with that because just putting a few adverts in 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 sort of local media and uh, dabbling a little bit online is not going to do it in terms of creating um, a sudden influx of healthy fees for shows. No, you're going to have to be persistent. You're going to have to get knocked back. You're going to have to spend money on advertising perhaps that doesn't appear to provide any tangible benefit. So there are all sorts of ways in which your persistence will be challenged. Uh, and I and I absolutely love that quote because if you were to ask most pros, well, what does it take to be a pro? They would go into lots of detail. But I think in that those two words, being persistent, Tommy Cooper has actually summed up what it really is all about. You need to keep on going when, even when things don't appear to be working and never waver in your self-belief. In other words, be persistent in all aspects in order to be a success. You know, I've always thought that we're really lucky as magicians with what we do, because by the very nature of magic, it tends to leave, providing the performance of a, of a reasonable standard, quite an impression with the people who see it. You know, we actually do things that in lay people's eyes are simply impossible. And as such, they're often therefore extremely memorable. And people will often, having experienced a, a, a magic performance, they will want to tell other people about it. They'll want to share the amazement that they felt when the magician did this, this and this right under their nose. And I can't think really of any other um, form of entertainment that can leave quite such a lasting impression so often with people who see it. I mean, clearly the performance of the magic has to be good. But nevertheless, magic itself already is intrinsically interesting to a lot of people and therefore often very memorable. And just how lasting the impression can be was brought home to me recently in a couple of instances. The first was I was booked to do a lady's 70th birthday party. She was uh, having about 40 or 50 friends round to her house and having a bit of food and some music, having me coming doing some mix and mingle magic. And uh, the reason she booked me for her 70th birthday party was because she had previously booked me for her 60th birthday party. So, in other words, obviously, there had been a 10-year gap between the two bookings. But the magic had left such an impression with her and she'd enjoyed it so much and felt that it was so much fun for her guests that she'd wanted to repeat it and have it again. And luckily for me, not only did she enjoy the magic, but she remembered that, that it was me who'd done it. And that's why I got the booking. So that was fantastic. The second example, which happened around about the same time, is that I'm a member of my local Rotary group. And we were doing a fundraising event in which um, somebody who has a very nice garden opened it up to the public to visit. 
and Rotary organised the sale of of tickets to the general public to get into the gardens. They organised um, a, a sculptor who brought some of her work to scattered around the garden for people to admire. Obviously, I was there doing the mix and mingle magic, and they had teas and cakes and, and various other refreshments there as well. It was very successful. They had a lot of people turn up. And I was doing, doing the magic, and I approached a group of four people. And as I started to perform, they said, actually, uh, we know you. And I said, oh, oh, do you? Oh, that's nice. She said, yes, I don't know if you remember, but um, my husband, pointing to the guy who was standing next to me, you did his 60th birthday party. And he said, and she said, and the strange thing is, today is his 70th birthday. And only this morning at breakfast, we were talking about his 60th birthday party and we were talking about you and the magic that you'd done. And we were remembering what it was like. And we turn up at this event and you're here. How amazing is that? And I thought this is amazing on so many levels. Firstly, yes, that I happen to be on the day of the guy's birthday, not entertaining specifically for his, his birthday, but he it was his birthday nonetheless that I should meet them, that they'd remembered me, and that previously, because the magic again had left such an impression, they'd remembered that 10 years ago they'd had the magic for his 60th birthday party and they'd ended up discussing it again. So we have quite a responsibility, don't we, as magicians? Because if people are going to remember for so long what we do, we better make sure it's really good. If you spend any time on magic websites or you look at magic magazines, you may well have seen recently some publicity for the Real Magic Roadshow. This is a series of roadshow days of magic being put on, actually organised by Paul Richards of Paul Richards Magic from America. And what he's done, and he's done this already in a number of countries in Europe as well as in the United States, he puts on a day where a collection of five specific dealers will turn up, usually in a hotel, and put on a day of demonstrations, uh, of information, and so on, and give people who come an opportunity to spend the entire day looking at the wares that are available from the dealers. Now, for this to work, of course, the dealers who make up the the sort of the the core elements, the core participants need to be all very different from each other and they need to all have something worthy and worthwhile to offer. And and you can see from the list that they have. You've got Magic Smith, JB Magic, Lysander, Card Shark and Paul Richards Magic, obviously himself. They're a very diverse bunch. All of them are very experienced people. They're all good demonstrators. And I think the day is bound to be a tremendous success for the people who turn up. Now, what they do is they uh, they take um, a week or something like that and they'll do various venues, one per day. And they're coming to the UK towards the end of September. And they're going to be doing these days in Edinburgh, Newcastle, Leeds, Bristol, Leicester and London. So there are six different events. And at each one, they also invite one extra sort of guest dealer. And luckily for me, they invited me to come to the Midlands event, which is in Leicester at the Leicester Hilton. So although I'm not doing conventions anymore these days, I thought, you know what? I really like the sound of this. This sounds a bit different. It sounds a bit fun. 
I think I'm going to do it. And so I am. I'm going to be having a stand along with the other five guys at the Leicester Hilton on the 20th, Saturday, the 28th of September. And entrance is, is £10, but if you pre-register, you do get a voucher to spend with one of the dealers during the day worth, guess what, £10. So basically your entrance is free, provided that you spend something. And everybody who pre-registers will also be entered into a prize draw. And a lucky winner will receive £250 worth of product if they are the ones who have been pulled out of the hat, as it were. So it is worth pre-registering and getting yourself into the hat for that draw as well. So I've, I've always thought that big magic conventions with lots of dealers, that they're fine. They they both for in terms of the number of people who go, let's take Blackboard, for example. I mean, that's the biggest convention in the world. And you have 170 odd dealers there, which is great in one way in that people who go to the convention, the conventioners have lots of deals to look round, but it can be slightly overwhelming, can't it? There are almost too many. And from the dealer's perspective, that is also the case, that they can sometimes, people can't find them. They can't, they get lost in the sheer volume of different dealers that people have to cope with and have to get through. Whereas an event like this, where you basically have six dealers in a room for a day, it's much more focused and it's much more pleasant, hopefully, for the people who come. It's more relaxed. You don't have to rush. There's, there's, there's no, you haven't got to rush off and see loads of lectures or, or shows or whatever because the day is all about looking at the Dems and looking at the products that people have for sale. You come with your buying head on and hat on, no doubt. And as such, it's a very interesting day. Come with your friends, make a social day of it as well. And it should be a lot of fun. So I'm hoping that uh, those of you listening to this and who wish to see me will come to the 28th of September event at the Leicester Hilton. But if you're not in that area and not coming to that one, try one of the others. Try Edinburgh, Newcastle, Leeds, Bristol or London, because the format is the same in each of the places. And you'll I'm sure you'll have an absolutely fabulous day. Those of you who do table hopping magic for big dinner functions will, I'm sure, on many occasions get the opportunity to quote for either a charity dinner or for a company dinner where they're perhaps like an awards night or something like that. And I have found over the years that you need to be a little bit careful when you are quoting for these types of event because... Unlike a normal celebration of some sort, whether it's a, a summer party or whether it's a, a Christmas dinner or something like that, awards nights and charity dinners are actually slightly different. Ostensibly, if you look around the room, there's a load of tables, people are sitting down, there's entertainment and they're eating a meal. So, OK, what's the difference? Well, the difference is the interruptions, isn't it? Because let's take, for example, a charity dinner. Now, the, the reason that they're having a charity dinner is usually to raise awareness of the charity and also to make money on the night. In order to make money, they have to do a number of things that will generate some cash and get people to part with some money. So they'll have games. One of the classic games that people do is heads and tails. Everybody stands up, everybody puts a fiver into an envelope to take part. And then... Everybody stands up and you either put your hands on your head 
or your hands on your backside. They toss a coin and then if it's heads, all the people with their hands on their heads sit down. All the people that had did not have their hands on their head stay in for the next round and get to choose again, heads or tails, and so on, until there's a winner left and they get a prize. Now, this sort of thing, of course, it has to be done in between the courses of a meal. And guess who's trying to work in between the course of the meal? Oh, by the way, it's you. So this means that there is absolutely no way that you can can perform when the entire room is doing a heads and tails game. Similarly, if you're going around the tables and one of the big ways that they raise money, of course, is by the sale of raffle tickets, you will be halfway through your act and suddenly a person with a with a book of tickets will arrive and noisily start trying interrupt you and noisily start trying to get people to buy raffle tickets. Now, sometimes they catch them on the way in. That's fine. But they often will come around the tables as well. And they very often will not pay any attention to the fact you're in the middle of your act, which can cause another disruption. And then, of course, and this is common also with awards nights, speeches. Now, these types of nights, as often there might be um, a speech from the CEO, if it's a company do. It might be the, the presentation of the awards themselves. You know, if you're doing an awards night, you really do need to find out whether all the awards are coming at the end of the meal. Don't make the assumption that they will all be done after the meal is finished and that you'll be able to work leading up to that point. It may not be. I've done them in the past where they actually spread them out and they'll do certain categories of awards after the first course, some more after the main course, some more after the dessert. It's a nightmare because, again, while they're doing awards, while somebody's holding a microphone and making announcements and people are clapping and walking up and all the attention is on people coming out from the audience to receive their awards, you can't work. And so it goes on. So there are lots of interruptions. So the times when when we as close-up magicians need to be working can be sometimes completely filled by these other, to us, irritations, but to the people running the events, important parts of their evening. So I, what I've taken to doing is uh, I don't make an assumption. If I find out that there's, if I usually ask, but if I, if I know right from the start that it's some sort of a special evening for presentation for, or for charity, then I very carefully go through with the organiser exactly when and what is going to happen. And then, depending on whether there are any gaps and what they're expecting me to do, I will either turn down the book and say, well, you know, to be honest with you, you have a lot going on at the time when I need to work. And with the best will in the world, I could charge you a fee and I could take it off you. But I'm not going to be able to work sufficiently to justify the fee that you're going to pay me. And I will be honest with them because I don't think it's fair, especially with charities when they're trying to raise money. They don't need to waste money. They want you to enhance the night not be a, not be someone who takes money simply out of it for not much else going back in again and under those circumstances I will often say well look um, I don't think it's going to work in between the course of the meal but how about I do the drinks reception only when people first arrive and then charge a lesser fee and just do the drinks rather than the drinks and the dinner or just the dinner itself because I do think it, it it's not fair to to pretend that you can do something that you that you really cannot do, and finding out this information in advance can save a lot of embarrassment too, because if you haven't found this out and you turn up expecting to do your normal work and then you discover you can't, 
that make, puts you in a very awkward position where you're being paid but you're standing around and doing absolutely nothing. In the early days of my life as a professional magician, I can remember on a couple of occasions being asked by a potential booker whether I would be prepared to dress up in a special costume in order to fit in with their particular event. The first one was, it was a medieval, medieval banquet and everybody, including all the waiting staff and everybody else, was going to dress up in medieval costumes. And so the organiser said, um, I'd like you to dress up as a court jester. Because after all, you're doing magic. It's, it seems that it's the right thing for you to do. So against my better judgment, I could hear myself saying, oh, yes, I can do that. No problem. Because when you're young and you're enthusiastic and you want the booking, you say yes to everything, don't you? And I duly went out and I did hire a costume. It wasn't until I put the costume on prior to going out to do the show and then I suddenly realised, where am I going to put the props that I carry? Now, most of the time in my normal um, attire, if you like, it's a, it's a suit. I've got all the pockets and I put all the things in the same pockets. I know where everything is. Suddenly, I'm wearing a jester's outfit that has virtually no pockets. And I suddenly realised I, I can't actually carry very much on me at all, which meant I had to take a sort of a bag with me to take some of the props. It meant there were several tricks that I would normally have done that I simply couldn't do because I needed secret, normally needed secret access to pockets that now weren't actually there. And it really threw me and I must admit that that show that night, I didn't enjoy a single minute of it. Uh, not only did I feel a bit stupid in this jester's outfit, although to be fair, everybody was dressed up, so nobody probably really noticed. But the practical elements of it really did upset my rhythm and upset my... And I didn't... I don't think I performed very well at all that night. About five or six years later, having experiences and vowed that I would never do it again I find myself saying yes to a company who were a call centre company and they wanted me to dress up in a Merlin's outfit including a big hat and go to their call centre building in Basingstoke and they wanted me to go in and out of the various rooms where all the people were sitting at their terminals uh, and entertain them. What they did was they used to use various things to um, reward those members of staff who were selling lots on the phone and who were being successful. And, and they would have days in which they would reward everybody for their efforts if they'd done or had a particularly good week by having some entertainment or some food or some drink or, or something just to break the monotony of what is a very monotonous job. So I hear myself saying once again, oh yes, I can do that. So they said, we'll get you the costume. So I turned up, not knowing quite what this costume was going to be like. And basically it was a very, very large, tall hat. And, and then what I can only describe as a massive sheet, grey sheet, with two armholes cut in it for me to put my arms through, obviously but very long. Now, I'm not that tall. I'm only five foot ten. Well, this was made for... I reckon this was made for somebody who was well over six feet tall. And although it had no pockets in it at all. The only thing it did have is two 
almost like slits on the side where you could put your hands in as if you're going into pockets and I could then reach into pockets of whatever I was wearing underneath. So I was kind of able to keep my jacket on underneath and then I had access to the pockets, but it was hellish awkward. And I also got very, very hot. Now this this building was, was I think it was four or five stories and there was no lift there was just big wide staircases going up to each of the levels so there I am with this huge hat on and this diaphanous sheet essentially trying to go up and down stairs getting very hot and bothered and because and any lady listening will know if you have a long dress on if you're not careful especially going up and down stairs you stand on the material you can fall over and several times I stood on the front of this huge sheet, which, bear in mind, was too long for me. And I f- fell flat on my face, looking even more of an idiot than I looked already with the costumes, costume on in the first place. So I, that was it. That was the last time I said, I am never doing this again. And from that day onwards, I have never said yes to any sort of costume. I think it's daft to compromise the quality of my show by what I wear. And I don't care anymore whether I fit in with somebody's idea of what's a good idea to wear or whether I don't. Because in the final analysis, if my magic is good, they're not going to be in any way bothered by what I wore. It's just that in advance, when they're thinking about a theme for an event, they think it's a good idea that everybody should dress up. And I always say no. And if they are not prepared to have that, then I simply won't do the booking. Because otherwise, I just know I'm not going to be able to do a proper job. Okay, at this point I've got a question for you. If you're a cabaret or stage performer and you need to get a spectator or spectators out to help you on stage, when you get them up, do you get them to stand on the stage next to you or do you offer them a chair and get them to sit down? Because it struck me the other day that the decision that needs to be made about whether they stand or sit could be made for all sorts of different reasons. I mean, when people are brought up on stage and they are are left standing, it can make them feel very uncomfortable. They've just been pulled out of a dark auditorium and thrust into the spotlight. They're being talked to by a magician who is full of probably funny lines and makes them feel slightly possibly disorientated. They're aware that everybody's looking at them. They suddenly think, oh, gosh, um, what am I wearing? Am I wearing, especially the ladies might think, am I wearing something that's OK to be seen on a stage? I didn't. I thought I was going to be hidden in the audience. I didn't expect to be part of the show. So they may feel very awkward. They may fidget. They may not stand in the right place. Or they may keep backing away from you or, or sort of back behind you slightly. You have to keep moving them because you may need them to be in the, the the best lighting position on the stage they won't know where that is you do so you keep you need to keep moving them which is not great if you have to keep moving people who aren't standing still so you might think well well in that case I'll always get people to sit down however if people sit down they then become small they may not show up as well on a, if it's a large stage there may be reasons why sitting down with them looking up at you is uncomfortable for them or just for the trick that you're doing, isn't quite right. It doesn't look right. So although now they feel perhaps more comfortable because they're not having to stand, they may feel not quite so compromised because they're in a seated position and and can relax a little bit more. 
maybe it doesn't work for the trick. So have you ever thought about why you have people either standing or sitting? I mean, if you're going to do something like, I don't know, the electric chairs, obviously you need chairs and they're going to sit down. That's something just specifically for the trick itself. But taking that type of thing out, so not a mental effect where people sit on chairs and you project which chair is going to be left when they're eliminated one by one or something like that. Eliminating all that type of thing, what do you do and why do you do it? And is it the decision that you actually made? Is it the right one? Is it the best option? If you get them to stand, would it be better if they sat? If you get them to sit, would it be better if they were to stand up? I just think that's really quite interesting. And and I don't know what the answer is. I, I would imagine that it varies from performer to performer and depends also on the type of act that you do and how mobile you want your spectators to be and also how long you want them to be with you. If they want them to be up with you for 10 or 15 minutes, from a purely practical point of view, sitting down, especially for an older person, might be very welcome. Anyway, I'll leave that with you just to think about um, and to see whether you ever have people up, what you do with them. Right, well, that's it for another Mark Leverage podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the various topics we've covered this time. Don't forget, please do go and visit my new website. It's the same URL, markleverage.co.uk, but a whole new look to the website. And I'd be appreciated if you could give me any comments. Any positive feedback would be much appreciated. And in the meantime, I will wish you a good month and I'll look forward to being back here with you again next month. Bye for now.